Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. As we continue our series on work matters, looking at how the Bible feeds into work life, let me tell you an ancient story. This is uh, about 3,000 years old, this story. There was once a famine in the land and a man and his wife and his two sons left that land to travel to another land where there was food. And they only went for a while. They always intended to return to their their homeland. But uh, while they were in that land, tragically, the father, the man, died. Uh, But fortunately for for the woman, her two sons were still alive and, and they settled down in this land called Moab. And over time, they came to marry two Moabite women. But after about 10 years, tragedy struck again, twice. Not only had this woman lost her husband, she then lost her two sons. And so these these three women, the mother and the two daughter-in-laws, were left destitute. In the ancient world, of course, there was no welfare systems, there was no provision there. And if you were in a a foreign land, like these women were, uh, their their situation was very desperate indeed. And so Naomi, that was the wife's name, made the decision to return to Israel, her homeland. And as she was about to leave Moab, though, she turned to her two daughters-in-law and said, no, you stay here. At least you've got some family connection in this land. And, and though it will leave me, she didn't say this, but although this will leave me totally alone, surely the best thing for you to do is to go back to the homes of your mothers, to go back to your, your, your ancestral homes where you can have some support and you, you won't have to be beggars or, or prostitutes. And, and one of the daughters-in-laws, she did. She sadly turned and, as the picture portrays, returned to the home of her mother. But the other daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth, it says... The story says she clung on to Naomi and said, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you live, I'll live. Where you die, I will die. Where you are buried, I will be buried. An amazing commitment to one another, two women who in the midst of tragedy and destitution commit to one another for benefit. So they return to the the land of Israel and as I said the the normal practices in that land if you were without a husband was you either went back to your family home of which Naomi had none or you became a beggar or you became a prostitute. But there was one other option, and that was that perhaps you could find a farmer who was generous enough so that he would allow the the poor people to to work, to go after his workers had gone through and harvested the land, that this man would be generous enough to allow the poor people to come along and to pick up whatever was left over on the ground. And Ruth, Naomi was obviously at the age that she couldn't do this sort of thing, but Ruth was young enough that she was able to go and she found a, a farm. She found a, 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 a farmer who was generous enough to allow her to come through after the harvesters and to pick up the little bit that was left over in order that she might survive. 
In fact, it turned out that this farmer who allowed this, this gleaning to occur was incredibly generous. And, and he allowed, he actually gave water to Ruth and allowed her to, to eat with the other workers. At the end of the day, Ruth, no later exhausted, but carrying a huge bundle of grain that the generous farmer had enabled her to have, came back to Naomi and, and imagined a great celebration of having food and, and, and hope in the middle of this destitution. And they're, they're talking about it. And, and finally, uh, Naomi says, what was the name of this farmer? And, and Ruth goes, it was, it was Boaz. And Naomi goes, he's a relative. He's a relative of mine. So Ruth keeps going back to this farm over, over time. And when the end of the harvest season comes, though, they, they realise that they're still in a state of destitution. And so Naomi encourages Ruth to, to go and have a bath, to put on her best perfume, probably her best makeup, whatever she had, put on some fresh clothes, and she, she goes to the, the farm where the, the, the Boaz is asleep. After the harvest season, he's, he's exhausted and he's had a bit to drink, the implication is in the story, and he, he's laying there asleep. And, and Ruth goes, and following the custom of the day, she uncovers his feet, and then lays at the foot of where he is sleeping. And uh, at one point, Boaz wakes up, presumably because his feet are cold. And, and as he wakes up, he, he looks down and sees this woman. and goes, and it's dark, and he says, who's there? And, and Ruth says, it's, it's your servant, Ruth. And uh, we don't know the customs in those days, but it seems that the uncovering of the feet was a, a, an invitation to marriage. And, and, uh, and Boaz covers her with his, his robe, which indicates that he accepts that offer of marriage. Now, now, just a little aside here, for any young people watching, you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend who you would really like for them to, you know, propose to you. Uh, I, I'm not sure this is the way to go. It, it might work. It'd probably get to, if you break into their home at night, uncover their feet, uh, you might get their attention, but you also might get an AVO. Uh, taken against you. So, so just be careful with that approach. But anyway, it worked for Ruth. But there was one more twist yet to come in the tale. Boaz was what they called the kinsman redeemer of that family, or one of the kinsman redeemers of that family. And these people were responsible that when a scenario like Ruth's and or Naomi's evolved, where a, a, a wife was left a widow and her husband owned land, the kinsmen redeemers would buy the land. They had the first right of refusal on the land so that the land never got transferred into other families. And so Boaz had some claim there, but he says to Ruth in this, uh, in this twist in the tale, I don't have first claim on Naomi's land. There is another kinsman redeemer who is more closely related to Naomi than I am. And so he he goes to the market the next morning, uh, the gates of the city where all the men talk and play chess and, and smoke and drink and coffee and tell stories to one another and where all the business was done. And, and Boaz goes to this other kinsman redeemer and says, Naomi has returned from Moab. Her husband is dead. You have the first right of refusal to buy her land. And you can almost hear the audience go, <gasps> As the other kinsman redeemer says, I shall redeem it. But Boaz has got one more card to play. He says, but not only do you get the land, 
you get the Moabites' daughter-in-law as well. And perhaps this man had too many women in his life already, but he says, no, that's a bridge too far. You can have the land and the Moabite. And the story ends with uh, Ruth and Boaz getting married and having a baby boy. And the boy is brought to Naomi, this woman whose husband had died and whose two sons had died, who thought she would never have grandchildren. And the boy Obed is there with her on the knee. And the narrator reveals that Obed would be the grandfather of King David, who would himself be the ancestor of the greater king, the Lord Jesus. And the curtain comes down and the tissues are passed around and the sniffling continues. It's the story of the book of Ruth, in case you hadn't picked it up. And it's clearly and amazingly in a patriarchal society, the two heroes in this story are women. Uh, Ruth and, and Naomi form in the midst of this adversity and tragedy and destitution and difficulty. They form a sisterhood of power. And these two women transform their lives through their commitment to one another. And they bring honour on themselves and God honours their faithfulness by blessing them with the ancestry that would lead to the Messiah. So, yeah, great story of, of women's liberation dating from 2,000 years or 1,000 years BC. But there's a second character in the story. He's, he's very much a background role, but he's crucial in that story, and that is the man Boaz. And it would seem that there's, there's two books in the Bible where God doesn't appear or God doesn't speak, or at least God doesn't seem to speak. One of those is Esther and the other one is the book of Ruth. God makes no immediate, plays no immediate role in the book of Ruth. But the message of the book clearly is that God is at work behind the scenes. God is at work bringing about his purposes in this story. And in particular, he brings about his purposes in this story through Boaz and in particular, the work practices of Boaz, the way that Boaz runs his farm, the way that Boaz treats his workers. So if you've got your Bibles there, turn to, to Ruth chapter 2. Did I put my Bible? There I put it. Ruth chapter 2, I'll, I'll read from verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, so, so no, Ruth has started working on the, in, the, in his farm, but uh, he, Boaz wasn't there when she started. So he arrives from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. 
I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your, of your husband, how you have left your father and your mother and your homeland and have come to live with a people you did not know before you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord, Ruth said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, although I do not have the standing of any of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. As we look at that chapter, we should be struck by the respect that Boaz has for his workers. As he's introduced, as he walks into his factory, as he walks into his office, it's bless you all. He sees his role as, his, as the leader, as the farmer and the owner to bless his workers. And his workers respond with, we want to bless you in response. And the very fact that he was there was an indicator, was unusual. In those days, social status was reinforced by who you ate with. Most farmers wouldn't have gone to the harvest they would have been off in their homes eating with their families. But here is, a, here is a, a, a boss who goes down to the farm, encourages his workers and shares a meal with them. Not only that, he not only blesses his, his workers, he, he blesses all of the people who are involved in his, in, his, in his harvest, including the women and including a foreign woman who has just turned up out of nowhere and who is gleaning his, his, his harvest. We read later on that he not only came down and ate with his workers, he actually winnowed with them. In chapter 3, we read that he worked with his workers and actually slept on the farm with them. This is all highly unusual. And his treatment of Ruth is, is highly unusual. She followed the custom that she is a long way off, standing off, and then when... Boaz has his meal with his workers, he invites her over and he actually even serves her, which was very unusual for a worker like that. And so Boaz treated everybody, all of his workers, with respect. And we can probably actually see here the first ever sexual harassment policy. And note it's got two dimensions to it. One dimension is protection, whereby he says to his men, do not touch the woman. The second dimension of it is opportunity, whereby he provides, so he doesn't sort of cast her off and sort of say, you make your own arrangements, you do the best you can in the situation. 
invites her into the group, gives her water and gives her opportunity to, to, uh, to prosper and to, to work hard. And notice that this attitude that Boaz has towards his workers has infiltrated and transformed the entire workplace. That even before he got there, Ruth had not been raped. She hadn't been molested and carried on with the way that things went on in, in the world at that time. The, the men speak to her nicely. The overseer treats her with respect. This is Boaz's influence, which is coming through in the, and changing the whole workplace so that the poor, the workers are respected, the poor are respected, and even women are respected in Boaz's workplace because of his influence. But we see something else that Boaz does. He is allowing for, for gleaning. Now, gleaning occurs where you know, most, this happens on most farms. There's waste, so there's, you know, the, the harvesters don't gather all of, the, all of the grain and the olive tree, the fruit pickers don't pick all of the fruit. Some falls to the ground. And the practice throughout the world over the years has been that farmers sometimes allow the poor people to come through after the harvesters and just pick up whatever is left off the ground. But in the Hebrew world, in the nation of Israel, it was actually required. It was a law. And we, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So this is the law of God. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all of the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go back over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave the remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. So they do it because this is the promise of the Lord's blessing when they glean and they do it as a reminder of the fact that they were once slaves and depended upon the mercy of others as well. A guy called William Messinger in the Theology of Work Projects identified five benefits of, of gleaning. The first was it provided an opportunity for productive work for those who didn't have work relationships. As we've seen through the works, Faith and Work series, God created us to work. God is a worker and he created us to work as well. And there is a double tragedy to unemployment. Firstly, it means that people don't have the income to provide for themselves and to meet their needs. But the second problem with unemployment is that we were created to work. And, and, and it has such deep psychological and social and physical implications when we don't work or are not able to work. And the gleaning activity enabled the poor and the marginalised who didn't have access to work, particularly the women who couldn't work in ancient Israelite culture, it enabled them to find productive work. It also maintained their skills and their dignity and their physical aptitude and their strength, which enabled them to carry on. The benefit was available locally. So often if there was a famine, like what happened in, with, with Ruth and her husband, you had to go somewhere else in order to be able to get work and food. Gleaning could occur in your own local neighbourhood. 
You had a relationship with the local landowner who let you do it. It was bureaucracy-free. There was no middleman, there was no welfare system here. It was a direct relationship between the landowner and the poor person. And finally, it reduced the possibility of exploitation. There was nothing forced about it. The, the workers were not obligated under a contract to work for the boss. They just went and did, took the grain and left freely and reservedly. And so gleaning was a great thing, and we, we know that often it wasn't practised. But here is one man, Boaz, who did observe it. He was a godly capitalist. He was quite wealthy. He made a lot of money from his harvest, but he also respected his workers and allowed for gleaning in his harvest. And the reason he did it was because he had the Judeo-Christian worldview. There's a, a la fancy Latin word called imago Dei, and literally it means image of God. And the idea that human beings are created in the image of God, that they are imago Dei, is the cornerstone of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And Boaz had it. And so when Boaz looked at his workers, he didn't see scum, he didn't see objects that he could exploit, he saw Imago Dei. He saw the image of God and he treated them with the respect that they deserved because they were created in the image of God. And when Boaz saw poor people coming onto his farm and, and going out and gleaning after the harvest, he didn't see scum. He didn't see people who weren't working hard. He didn't look down on them. He saw the Imago Dei and he treated them with respect. And when Boaz saw women, he didn't see the weaker sex. He didn't look down on them. He didn't patronise them. He saw the Imago Dei and he treated them with honour and respect. And of course, as Christians, we have this enforced onto us even more because when Jesus came and he looked at people, he didn't see status and he didn't see appearance, he saw people who desperately needed him. He saw all people who were, were sinful and he went to the cross for all people because of his love and respect for us. And he left his disciples with the challenge to show the Imago Dei, to, to recognise the Imago Dei in all people. And so down through the centuries, Christians have been involved in, in creating workplaces that, that honour and respect people and where gleaning can occur. And there's actually some interesting cases of gleaning observable coming from, from Christians. Uh, so you might have heard of, heard of Food Bank and uh, the vision was it's basically gleaning. So supermarkets used to throw away millions of tonnes of food every year just because it's used by dates or the bananas had spots on them or whatever. Uh, and so in a sort of the modern equivalent of gleaning, Food Bank collects all of that food and this comes from the generosity of the big supermarkets. But the food is collected, food they could potentially sell, is collected and then given to the poor. It's the same principle. There's an internet company in the United States called Tango Internet and when they move into a new city or build new offices, 
They always build extra offices. They have make sure they've got more offices in their buildings than they need, and they let organisations. This, this is a, it's a Christian organisation, so Christians organisations that can't afford space, they let them use those office spaces for free. The square peg development in Seattle was growing rapidly and because of that um, some of the employment screening wasn't done properly and they discovered a year or two later that three or four of the employees were actually ex-prisoners who hadn't had sort of been able to sneak through the system, they, they wouldn't have employed them before but these men had come in and had transformed the business. Having been given the opportunity to work, they, they worked hard, they brought good values and for that point, the company decided in future that it would preferentially employ ex-drug addicts, people coming out of prison and people coming out from homelessness. And it's an exceedingly successful business company, the building developer, because of the process of gleaning that they were utilising. I've got a friend who, who's got an intellectual disability and for most of his working life, he has worked in a metal fabrication business as just a general hand. And I am sure that he is far from the most productive worker in that business. But, but I've never met the boss, but I'd like to one day because his generosity of spirit, his treatment of the principle of gleaning, whether he knows it or not, of allowing this man to work over all these years has been such a profound blessing on him and his wife and his son. But all of us can practice gleaning through the Ethical Fashion Guide. So you can hop on there and you can look up where you buy your clothes from and you can see whether that clothes manufacturer or clothes retailer guarantees that all of the workers down the production line, all the way from the cotton fat, cotton picking, cotton sewing farm, all the way through the, the manufacturing and, and export, get a fair wage. Now, it might be a good bargain for you to be able to get a $10 pair of jeans from Kmart or Lowe's or whatever, but to get those $10 jeans to Australia, there must have been exploitation all the way down the line. And it might mean we have to pay a little bit more for our clothing, but it means that we can buy it with the confidence of knowing that people are being paid a fair wage all the way back through the production system through doing that little bit of work about our fashion but all of us also have the opportunity to treat workers with respect some of you are in the position where you have authority over others walk in the footsteps of Boaz see the image of God in your employees and treat them with respect and allow a bit of gleaning as you as you lead that workplace most of us have co-workers on our front lines, whether that's in a workplace situation or in a club or wherever our front lines are, we have co-workers. We can treat them with respect as well, following in the footsteps of Boaz. But all of us have people who serve us through their work, particularly those gig economy workers, the people who, who deliver the food, the people who, who drive you around, it is a precarious workplace for them. Their wages are right on the minimum, if not below. We can apply the principle of gleaning with all of them. Always be generous. Always allow that little bit extra.
We don't do tipping in Australia, but the tip is, is the glean that we can provide for those who are on the edge. So, the spirit of Boaz, the, the godly capitalist. I'm going to finish with a, a video clip, which is a, hopefully, we, we had some sound problems, but hopefully it'll come up. Uh, a story told by a woman called Nancy Ortberg about a workplace that she was in where the leader of that workplace walked in the footsteps of Boaz. The first one is, I want to start off by telling you a story. Many years ago in my career, I started off as a nurse. I worked in the emergency room. And most evenings, I loved coming to work, especially when one of the doctors was on call that night. There was one doctor in particular. He happened to be a Christ follower, although he didn't tell a lot of people that. But he had a way of causing all of us to contribute in a way that something extraordinary happened because we were a team. We were not just a collection of individual people, but he called the best out in each one of us. And I can guarantee you that when those of us who worked in the emergency room on a regular basis came to work and his name was on the board, we all knew the next eight hours was going to fly by. Not only did he have to make us function together as a team, but what made him elevated to a new level of leadership is when a code got called on a patient. When somebody was in such a crisis that all departments in the hospital needed to respond, around that bed was not just the people from the emergency room, but somebody from laboratory, somebody from x-ray, somebody from respiratory therapy, people that we didn't know, and he had to make us function like a team. One of the things he would do is if there was a lull in the code and it was appropriate, he would ask those of us who were much less qualified than him what we might do next. He was constantly teaching. He would call us by name. He would thank people for getting the lab results back quickly. He would ask us, should I put a chest tube in now or should I push this drug or that drug? He made us feel like we were together. I remember one night working on a little kid. And boy, if you don't think the urgency doesn't go through the roof in a situation like that, and one moment we were waiting for some test results to come back before we decided what to do next, and he looked around the circle around the table and he said, we will save this kid. And man, I'll tell you, you could have heard a pin drop in that room and we all just grabbed down to the lowest parts of our soul and brought another better version of us up and worked even harder together. I remember one night in particular around 8 o'clock on an evening shift when they brought a 24-year-old woman in. And it took us about three hours of working together before we had a determination whether we would send her to the morgue or up to the intensive care unit. The room looked like a bomb had gone off. There had been many tense moments when it wasn't looking good. But at the end of those three hours, we stabilized her enough. And a number of the nurses and respiratory therapists gathered around her gurney where there were tubes coming out all over. And they escorted her up the four floors to the intensive care unit. Housekeeping came in and cleaned the room. I hung back in the back and did what nurses do. I caught up on my notes and eavesdropped with the doctor and what he was saying to the intern. And I listened as the doctor that I admired so much began to debrief the three-hour code with the intern that was working with him that night. And they spent about 20 minutes going over different procedures that they had done, different lab results, and how they had responded with medication and procedures. And my doctor that I loved working with coached the intern through each one of those decisions. And then, at the end of the 20 minutes, he said to the intern, did you notice the guy from housekeeping that came in at the end of the code and cleaned the room up? 
Well, you could tell immediately by the look on the intern's face that not only did he not notice the guy who had come in, he had no idea and was a bit annoyed as to why he was being asked this question. And I remember thinking, I'm not leaving this room even though my notes are done. <laughs> so I did pretend writing. And I could tell immediately when the intern gave that look back, I wouldn't want to be you right now, buddy. And my doctor said to him, his name is Carlos. And then waiting for some response from the intern who held that same look on his face, he just pushed the knife in a little bit deeper and twisted it. He said, listen, Carlos is the best guy we have on our housekeeping team, and they're all good. But when Carlos comes in as part of our team, he cleans that room up faster than anybody and everything gets put back exactly where it belongs and you and I can treat another patient immediately because of the work Carlos does. Still, stupid blank stare. <laughs> so my doctor said, Carlos's wife's name is Maria. They have three kids. He named them and the age of each child. And then he said, they came up from Mexico about two years ago. They live in a small apartment in Santa Ana about three miles from here. And I remember thinking, oh, he's, he's been there. And then, to sum up the whole debrief situation, he put his hand on the intern's shoulder and he said, when you and I work next together next Tuesday, I want you come prepared to tell me something about Carlos that I don't already know. It was one of the most brilliant leadership moments I have ever observed. What I love about this story is Carlos didn't become a doctor. That's not the part of the story I'm here to tell you. Carlos, as far as I know, is still working in the housekeeping department of that hospital. It did not make any difference to that doctor. He treated Carlos like a member of the team, the same way he treated the intern, the nurses, the lab technicians. He opened his eyes and he saw the value that Carlos brought that everybody else often, including the intern, not only overlooked, but actually dismissed. There was a personal connection with his doctor, with the people that worked around him that went above and beyond anything I had ever seen. And that event happened 32 years ago. I can still tell it like it happened yesterday. I was so stunned by his vision for other people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when you look at us, you don't despise us. That even though we're broken and wretched, even though we're selfish, make a mess of things, even though we hurt other people and disappoint you, you still love us and you tr still treat us respect and you even went to the cross on our behalf. And Father, it's out of gratitude that we want to walk in the footsteps of Boaz to be people who are, are marked by respect for other people in all, all situations, but especially in that work context, Lord. Help us to see your image in everybody who we work with, everybody we supervise, and even the poor and the marginalised who, who are involved in our lives. And Lord, give us the generosity to be able to allow gleaning to occur. Help us to overcome the the tight-fisted spirit within us which wants to get everything out of every, every value out of everything, to squeeze every last dollar out of every situation. Help us to be open-handed and generous 
the way that Boaz was. So we thank you for the example that he sets for us and we pray that he can follow, we can follow in his footsteps. Amen. Thanks, sir. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.